It's a nightmare. Heavy footsteps behind you. Huge hands snaking around your neck. Or maybe it's the feel of cool breath. The scraping of sharpened teeth. This Halloween, let's go back to the beginning. Come along as we visit two of the world's most famous monsters and their creators. You totally made that up. We are a history podcast that tells you the wildest, craziest, nuttiest stories from yesteryear. Ones that sound like somebody must have totally made them up. But they're all true. And we especially like the ones that have supernatural, paranormal, woo-woo elements. So those parts may only be true to the people who lived them. We don't go for the lore says or the legend goes, though. We want dates and names and all the facts that we can find. And I am Nash. And I am Tiff. We are your hosts. And to those of you who might be new, no, that was not our typical intro music. That's Halloween special, because this, friends, is your Halloween episode, our favorite holiday. Hooray! Love it. And please do check out last year's Halloween episode, because I think it's one of our best. I really do. It, It was a good time. It was. And as a reminder, just right off the top, if my diction sounds a little funny to you, in particular, F's and S's, see? See what I mean? It is because I'm still in the midst of dental hell, oral surgery hell. So please forgive me for that. It should not last too many more episodes, God willing, and the creek don't rise. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. All the good luck. I want it. I want it. I want your prayers. I want your lighting candles. I want anything you're willing to give me. That This is going to be over soon. All right. A couple things of, it's not business. I say, I almost said a couple business items, but it's not business. It's good stuff, I think. We got a great review in and it was from the UK. And the reason, the only reason we saw it is because there's a service called Chartable that gives you extra data on top of whatever your provider or I mean your not your provider what is it Tiff whoever I guess it's your provider your um who you upload your podcast to that those people that those companies those your platform your platform yeah so other than that and you know a lot of the streaming services give you some data it just depends it depends but Chartable kind of mashes a bunch of them together in any event it'll pop up reviews and all I've ever seen from them are U.S. reviews. Then this one came up. I say all that to say it was total happenstance because I don't check it every day. Maybe I should. It was total happenstance that I caught it. And I bring this up because if you are outside the U.S. and have left us a review on iTunes, it doesn't show. At least on the U.S. end, it does not show. And I know for a fact that some listeners from 
oh gosh, where are they from? I want to say South America. Anyway, they had left us a review and they told us about it. Like they took a screenshot because they knew and I didn't know. They're who I learned this from that iTunes won't show anywhere outside the U.S. to me at least. So if you guys, any of you guys listening, and I'm thinking of others in the U.K., um, who are our top three? I think Great Britain, Ireland, and Sweden are our top three. So if any of y'all have left reviews on iTunes, shoot us a screenshot so we can love on you. Because I will absolutely love on you. I'll post it on Twitter and all that good stuff. So just let us know. That's all I'm saying. Because we don't know. And speaking of feedback, and I did not share this with Tiff ahead of time because I want to make her laugh always. You apparently, I know because I know you would have included it in your story. It either wasn't in your sources or your eyes just skipped right over it or something because I know if you saw it, you'd have included this. So lovely devoted listener Harriet sent in this jewel about the last episode about the Jersey Shore shark attacks. And here's what was said. Love the new episode. You missed out on my favorite part of the Jersey shark attacks, though, where they took one victim to a hotel lobby and just dumped him on the concierge desk. (laughs) Poor concierge. That's unlikely to be in any of his responsibilities or skill sets. (laughs) (laughs) I do remember coming across that. Yes. And I'm sorry I left that out. No. Well, hey, in your defense, I left out in the Ben Franklin episode that he wrote... (laughs) That he wrote an essay on farting. So, you know, sometimes, folks, we miss things. And we love it when you let us know. And Thank you, Harriet. Thank you, Harriet. Oh, Harriet also gives a thumbs up for the movie In the Heart of the Sea. So you got another recommendation there, which was the Moby Dick involved story. I still haven't heard from anybody telling me what the hell the name Dick has to do with whales. And we know of at least two whales now that have their, I guess, surname is Dick. <laughs> I have no idea. Whatever. If any of you have solved that mystery, please let us know. Because again, I'm not looking it up. Okay, here's what you're in for. As you could tell by the intro, and you might have already guessed, because on Instagram, well, here's always, sometimes it's like in past episodes, I've noticed it's like I tried to keep the topic a secret. And duh, it's in the episode descriptions that's going out into your feeds. So you already know before you clicked on it. And then now on Instagram, I've been posting, I've just been ponying it up, what the topics are. So I don't, I'm not going to, you know, be sneaky about it anymore. We're going to talk to you today about Mary Shelley and the book Frankenstein and about, is it Brahm or Bram? Because his name is Abraham. So would you go Bram? I say Bram. Okay. I do too. So Bram Stoker. That's how I'm going to say it as I'm talking. So if anyone's got a problem with it too bad. Well, it makes sense because it's not Abraham. Brom or what it's Abraham yeah so Bram it makes sense to me so Bram Stoker and Dracula cue the cue more lightning I'm not going to put in more lightning so I guess I'm going first and oh listen listen it's entirely possible this is going to turn into another mega episode it might not it might not because I'm able to speak a little more quickly than I have in recent past I swear to god though y'all I'm I know I'm the long-winded one I'm aware of it. I do edit myself. It might not sound like it, but you should see. You should see my document before I whittle it down. If you guys think, God, our stories are long. (laughs) I mean, it's like freaking Tolstoy over here. But it's it's because I write in sections. Do you know what I mean? Like I have, I outline it and then I just start sticking in chunks from my sources under 
under the sections and then I have to whittle those down and reword them and give my opinion and crap like that. So listen, it might be a mega episode. It might not. We'll find out, won't we? Okay. Onto the stories. Unless you have anything. Did you have anything? No, I'm ready. I'm excited. Yeah. Tip actually went to the library on this one. I went to the library. I faced COVID. I went to the library. You guys better appreciate it. See, ours, well, the one closest to me, at least, isn't open. So I guess somebody at some level of Tennessee governance is doing something right. <laughs> some <clears throat> alone, alone soul, alone soul. Y'all, please, please wear masks. This would be over lickety split if we would all just wear masks. P.S. Because that's how viruses work. They're like fire. You got to choke them out. You got to quit giving them fuel. And we happen to be the fuel. I'm now going to tell you of the creator of Frankenstein and his monster. And so that your brain doesn't default to all the movies about old Frankie, I will give you a quick rundown of the 1818 book in the event y'all haven't read it. First off, the full title is Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Prometheus being the titan in Greek mythology who snatched down fire from the gods and gave it to humanity. The structure of the story is, quote, a set of letters from an English adventurer to his sister, recounting his Arctic expedition and his meeting with the strange, emaciated, haunted Victor Frankenstein. Within the adventurer's account, Frankenstein tells the story of his fateful experiment, which has led him to pursue his creature to the ends of the earth. So essentially, we're hearing the story of the creation of the monster via a substitute for us, this explorer. And this story he hears about is how a Swiss scientist called Dr. Victor Frankenstein learns about some neato scientific advancements relating to electricity. We'll get there. And he gathers up body parts, reconstructs a complete human more or less, and zaps it. Then, quote, the creature comes to life, and Frankenstein is horrified by what he has unleashed. A tragic chain of events is set into motion, and by the end of the tale, everything Frankenstein loves has been destroyed by his creation. And then after the Doctor and the Explorer part ways, quote, vowing to destroy the monster, Frankenstein pursues it through the frozen wastelands of the Arctic. There, he perishes mysteriously, and the monster disappears into the darkness. Nice little bedtime story. No nightmares there. And I'm going to reference things the author said in an added intro to the second edition, the purpose of it being to answer a question readers surely had. Quote, how I, then a young girl, came to think of so very hideous an idea. So let's talk about this impressive young author. I take you to Summerstown, London, August 30th, 1797, where Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin was born to the feminist philosopher, educator, and writer Mary Wollstonecraft and the novelist, journalist, political philosopher, and bit of an anarchist, William Godwin. My girl was already set up for a wild ride. Her mother died of a postpartum infection within the month, but her father, even though he remarried, made sure that Mary had all her mother's manuscripts and journals and whatnot. He made sure that she knew her mother and good on him. Quote, as a child, Mary was profoundly affected by her mother's legacy. Later writing in 1827, the memory of my mother has always been the pride and delight of my life. And here's a funsy, quote, Mary's father taught her to read by tracing the letters on her mother's gravestone. <laughs> now, you know, parenting can be so subjective. You had alphabet blocks, she had a gravestone, and who are we to judge? You gotta do what you gotta do. Work with what you have. That's right, play the cards you've been dealt. We're not going to talk about her parents, though, because this ain't about them. They are both really impressive. Have a look into them sometime. 
But some people in Mary's circle you do need to know a little bit about. First up, Percy Shelley. He was a poet and self-proclaimed philosopher who'd admired William Godwin, and for a long while he wrote letters to Godwin. And he was kind of an anarchist too. I mean, anarchist considering the time. He was all about not putting a lot of stock in the church. He was against privilege. He wanted equality for all. And he wasn't so big on marriage. Like I say, nowadays, not terribly fringe ideas. Still, he didn't get away with it unscathed. Quote, Having been thrown out of Oxford for his atheism and disowned by his father, Shelley had sought out William Godwin, his intellectual hero, as a surrogate father. Godwin would respond to Shelley. They'd go back and forth. And Shelley's letters were so good, Godwin would actually read them aloud to the family meaning Mary had heard of this dude, she knew who he was, and because Godwin had mentioned his wicked smart daughter in the correspondence, Percy knew about Mary too. And this wasn't in a letter to Shelley, but to give you an idea of how Godwin felt and spoke about Mary, here's a quote from him describing her at age 15, that she was singularly bold, somewhat imperious, and active of mind. Her desire of knowledge is great, and her perseverance in everything she undertakes is almost invincible. In 1814, Percy's in Godwin's bookstore in London's East End, quote, in hopes of meeting his hero's beautiful 16-year-old daughter. He was 21 years old. Different times, folks, different times. And, quote, Mary was Percy's soulmate. He took her almost as seriously as he took himself. He's a real piece of work, by the way. Get ready. So, Mary and Percy have met. Sparks have flown. She's now deep in love. The hitch is that Percy's already married with a kid and another on the way. You know, the guy that didn't really cotton to the Institute of Marriage. Life comes at you fast. So they have to be all secretive. And here's a bit of a goth. They meet or exchange notes and, uh, whatnot, at night at the grave of her mother. See, that's what you get for teaching your children how to read at the cemetery. It becomes their special place. Now, it turns out Daddy knew, and he was pissed. Yeah, he held progressive views, which did include women, but this is a 16-year-old kid carrying on with a married, worldly man, so he forbids them from seeing each other, and it totally worked. No, it didn't. Of course it didn't. According to the BBC documentary Frankenstein, Birth of a Monster, which I'll have linked for you in show notes, Percy was so miserable about them potentially not being able to be together, he actually held a gun to his head, and Mary stops him, but then that night he ODs on laudanum. Not fatally, he lives. And on an aside, I have to wonder if these were more attention grabbers than anything else, because as you'll see, Percy Boy is pretty conniving. Regardless, my dude had it bad. So while Mary was very close to her father, he'd instilled in her the importance of personal freedom, and it was part of his and her late mother's philosophies, and so it's kind of coming back to bite him in the ass. One night she packs a bag, goes to meet Percy so they can run off together. Oh, but wait! He also invites along her stepsister, Claire Claremont. And I have to pause here. People, stop with this. It's not cute. It's very annoying. Claire Claremont, Tommy Thompson, Richard Richardson, Pete Peters. Your children hate you. They hate you. <laughs> they hate you hard. Anyway, he's invited along Claire because, quote, Shelley had plans. Free love was an idea that was being bandied around at the time by radical thinkers. But Shelley didn't just want to think about it. He wanted to do it. He was planning to set up a commune with as many women as he could muster, including Claire, Mary, and his poor abandoned wife. So, God damn it. So a cult. I mean, <laughs> we've been there, done that. Check out those episodes. 
They travel across the English Channel. They're headed for a resort in Switzerland, and they're taking a route along the Rhine River, which happens to flow through Germany. And we know what all went on because, quote, as they traveled, Mary and Percy read works by Mary Wollstonecraft and others, kept a joint journal, and continued their own writing. And they were very detailed. Like, it was stuff like, we stopped here for dinner, we spent this much time there, blah, blah, blah. So, very detailed itinerary. And we're going to come back around to this specific trip. Just hang tight. Okay, but fast forward. After their travels, when they run out of cash, they head back to England. We're still in 1814, by the way, and she's pregnant. If you thought Godwin was pissed off before, who boy. But he lets her stay at the house. Fast forward again. When she's 17, she gives birth to a girl, but the baby is two months premature, and it dies shortly afterwards, before she even had a chance to name it. Mary wrote in a letter to a friend, quote, It was perfectly well when I went to bed. I awoke in the night to give it suck. It appeared to be sleeping so quietly that I would not awake it. It was dead then, but we did not find that out till morning. And then the dreams start. And she wrote in her journal, quote, Dreamt that my little baby came to life again, that it had only been cold, and that we rubbed it before the fire, and it lived. Awoke and found no baby. I think about the little thing all day. A year later, she's 18. She's had another baby, a son, and all went well with that pregnancy. He's healthy. But by this point, Godwin had essentially disowned her. And while Percy came for money, like I said, his family's done with him too, because he's just a wrecking ball. All he does is create scandal. Also, Claire had peaced out for a little bit at some point, and she may have had a Percy baby as well. A little bit fuzzy there. Wasn't clear. Was it kind of one of those, she's going away for the summer, and then she comes back a new woman? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But she had her eye on somebody else. George Gordon Byron, the sixth Baron Byron, who you may know better as simply Lord Byron. We're just name dropping like crazy in this one. If by chance he doesn't ring bells, all you need to know is that he was a capital B big deal. He's one of Britain's most renowned poets. He was also a politician for a time. And, germane to our purposes, he was a good friend of Percy's. I gotta tell you a quick factoid, though. One of his children was daughter Ada Lovelace. And if you are unaware of who Ada is, give her a quick Google and prepare to be amazed. We actually may cover her at some point. Moving on. Claire has found herself knocked up by Lord Byron. And, you know, he was as honorable a dude as Percy was, by the way. And she's going to go chill with him for a while. And his place was the big hangout party house. I mean, he had more than one residence. But right now, we're talking about one house in particular that was located at Lake Geneva, which is on the north side of the Alps between Switzerland and France, called Villa Diodati. And I have to include this quote, talking about Byron's crew. Moralizers called them the League of Incest. <laughs> I mean, but nobody was related, so I kind of don't get the... But I, I think that's funny. The League of Incest sounds like... <laughs> Next a really, up. really bad superhero group? Yes, like the Avengers or the, yeah. <laughs> okay, so anyhow, it's the summer of 1816, and it sounds like Mary and Percy rented a house nearby, but they're hanging out at Byron's all the time. Mary wrote about this summer, quote, It proved a wet, ungenial summer, and incessant rain often confined us for days to the house. Reason why the weather was so shitty, by the way, is because the year prior there had been a volcanic eruption, Mount Tambora, which is actually the most powerful eruption ever documented, and it wrecked the atmosphere globally, lowering the temperature and, of course, overcast skies. And I didn't go on a meteorological dive, but it was mentioned that it caused significant climate change, crops were wrecked, all that jazz. It persisted for quite a while. As a matter of fact, this time frame of 1816 is called the year without a summer. 
you want to talk about a primo ingredient for inspiring creepy thoughts. I mean, that's just right up there. And to add another ingredient, Mary says, quote, Some volumes of ghost stories translated from the original German into French fell into our hands. Ooh. On one particular night, Mary and Percy are at the house. Claire's already there, of course. And also in attendance is John Polidori, who is Lord Byron's personal physician and secretary, who is staying with them for the summer. They're reading from some of the books I just mentioned, getting all spooky, and Byron says he's got an idea. Each of them should tell a ghost story. From Mary, quote, His proposition was acceded to. There were four of us. The noble author began a tale, and a fragment of which he printed at the end of his poem, Mazeppa. Shelley, more apt to embody ideas and sentiments in the radiance of brilliant imagery, commenced one founded on the experiences of his early life. Poor Polidori had some terrible idea about a skull-headed lady who was so punished for peeping through a keyhole. What to see, I forget. Something very shocking and wrong, of course. Yeah, it was real memorable, I can tell. (laughs) I can tell what a banger Polidori's story was. But we have to take a tiny aside because I have to tell you this. Polidori did ultimately reach a touch of fame as a writer with his 1819 short story, The Vampire, spelled with a Y, naturally, and it is touted as the first published modern vampire story. Apparently, I'm having trouble with V's. Add that to the F's and the S's. God damn it. I'm glad I've not got your story so I don't have to say vampire more than just in this paragraph right here. (laughs) Holy moly. Okay. So, it's touted as the first published modern vampire story, more specifically, quote, is often viewed as the progenitor of the romantic vampire genre of fantasy fiction. Screw off, Polidori. I blame you for Twilight, which in turn means I blame you for Fifty Shades of Grey. And I, and I disagree. It's all coming together. It's everything starting to make sense. No. And I disagree with the assertion that I saw in one of my sources that this story was born out of the ghost story challenge that night because clearly Mary has said that his was about some skeleton shit and that it sucked. (laughs) So. Oh, I actually have some information in my story that kind of validates that. What, my assertion? No, no, that it did come out of this. Well, when? Because... Because the one that he ponied up was was garbage skeleton woman <laughs> peeping through a keyhole. Okay, we'll give him we'll give him that. Okay, he may have asked for a do over. Okay, he may have asked for a do over for all we know. But all right. But anyway, so she, like I said, she told a little bit about the other two guys. Didn't mention that Claire participated. Maybe she didn't. I missed it. But as I sit here, I I don't recall any plots being getting into beside her besides her shitting on Polidori but Mary was like I'm gonna need to let this marinate I've got some thoughts I want to put some pen to paper because she was the type kind of like her dad said if she was gonna do this and especially for two well-known writers she was gonna put some real effort into it quote from Mary I busied myself to think of a story a story to rival those which had excited us to this task one which would speak to the mysterious fears of our nature and awaken thrilling horror, one to make the reader dread to look around, to curdle the blood and quicken the beating of the heart. If I did not accomplish these things, my ghost story would be unworthy of its name. However, she then goes on to say, I thought and pondered vainly. I felt that blank incapability of invention, which is the greatest misery of authorship, when dull nothing replies to our anxious invocations. Have you thought of a story? I was asked each morning. 
and each morning I was forced to reply with a mortifying negative. <laughs> so relatable. My gosh. Right? I felt her. I felt her hard. Tiff and I are in like a little writing group. So I was like, when I read that, I felt Mary. I felt it. Several days pass. She has a dream, which she describes in the introduction of Frankenstein. When I placed my head on my pillow, I did not sleep, nor could I be said to think. My imagination, unbidden, possessed, and guided me, gifting the successive images that arose in my mind with a vividness far beyond the usual bounds of reverie. I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out, and then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful it must be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. So what's she talking about, this pale student of unhallowed arts? Let's leave Mary pondering on her story for a bit so that I can tell you what she meant about the stuff that could have potentially, and that actually did, get her brain cranking. There's a handful of things and people that are said to have inspired the various elements in Frankenstein, one in a major way. First, though, one that's not so robust. There's just not a clear, direct line to Mary, and that's the whole name thing and the castle thing. I would said earlier we'd come back around to their travels along the Rhine through Germany, and here we go. There is a castle, and it's in southern Hesse. It's called Stone of the Franks Castle in English, but in German, it's closer to simply Frankenstein's castle. Here's why this is a nebulous one. First off, despite what you may have seen in movies about Frankie, there's no castle in the book. Secondly, one of my sources said they wouldn't have been able to see it from the route they took along the Rhine. Third, if they had actually gone up to see it, you damn well know Mary would have journaled about it, touring an old-ass castle. I mean, I don't know the woman, but based on her journaling obsession and eye for detail, I cannot fathom that she wouldn't have written about it. And between her and Percy, like I said, every moment of this trip is detailed. On the other hand, the name Frankenstein, that is a pretty interesting coincidence, so I can find it plausible that she may have heard the story of the castle from somewhere. And there was a story. It's documented that a dude who fancied himself an alchemist did indeed live in Frankenstein's castle. And Lord help us alchemy, that comes up more in a bit. Anyhow, his name was Conrad Dippel, and he was born in the castle in 1673. Quote, rumors surrounding Dippel hold that during his time at Frankenstein Castle, he practiced anatomy as well as alchemy, even going so far as to exhume corpses and perform medical experiments on them. Okay. Gotta love those guys. Gotta love it. <laughs> we've, we've, <laughs> we've talked about people digging up corpses and yeah, we've had corpse talk, listen, on multiple episodes now and, and more, by the way, in planned episodes. But anyway, we'll get there. All right, but there's no evidence, and there is plenty of documentation on him that Dippel worked, or rather did his experiments at the castle. It seems his only real tie-in is that he was born there and lived there for a time. Here's a cool factoid, though. Quote, Dippel created an elixir known as Dippel's oil. Derived from pulverized animal bones, the dark, viscous oil was used as late as World War II as a chemical warfare agent that rendered wells undrinkable without actually making the water poisonous. Huh. Gross. Gross is the good, because I was about to say, I have no comment. I don't know what to do with that, but gross, gross nails it. I mean, how does one even begin to come up with such a thing? Let's see what happens when I put ground up bones in a, I don't know. Anyway, 
So assuming Mary was aware of this, did she hear it while on this trip? At least the name Frankenstein. Well, besides the fact that it wasn't a terribly uncommon name, there may be another possibility. Her stepmother, so Claire's mother, was actually a translator for the Grimm Brothers stories, and there was an assertion that one of the letters from Jacob Grimm to the stepmother talks about the castle and its supposed creeptastic elements. Ergo, the name would have been brought up, so then it could be she in turn mentioned it to the family. But so far, no evidence of this has turned up. It looks like only one dude has claimed that this letter exists and that it's in a family's private collection and that they're unwilling to part with it or let anybody else see it. Oh, except for this very special one guy. So, you know, that's real sus. There's also apparently no indication in the Grimm Brothers records, of which we have a plethora, that they wrote letters to the stepmother. But again, I'm like, she was their translator. It's not like they were just sending her a huge stack of paper with no, hey, what's up? Hope you're doing well. You know, that kind of note. On the other hand, would they go into some long tale with someone who was just their translator and not a friend or like their editor? And if she was a friend, that would have been in their records, to be sure. So I, I get why that's not plausible. I do think it's cool, though, that her stepmother was a translator for Grimm stories. I, that's, just, that's just neato to me. She's got connections. All over the place. It's insane. And a last thing on the name. Here's a funny. I mean, I thought it was funny. One of my sources mentioned that there has been some speculation that Dr. Frankenstein is named for a pioneer of electricity who you may have heard of, Benjamin Franklin. And that she popped a stein on there to suit the provenance of the character. <laughs> hey, your buddy. Hey, Ben. You're going to follow us now, aren't you? Ben's going to follow us. Just like tuberculosis. By the way, I do get to mention tuberculosis in my story. I'm like, damn it. Damn it. There's just some things that are always going to follow us. Corpses, tuberculosis, probably alchemy. Um, what is it? Spiritualism. There's, there's a handful of things. If you're new, be aware. There's a handful of things that have relentlessly pursued us. Oh, yeah. Get ready. <laughs> this episode's chock full of them. Chock full. Next, and this is the biggie, there's galvanism. All right, buckle up. I'm going to give you a little physiology primer to help you get your brain wrapped around what's going on. So the thing to know about the body is that it's constantly trying to keep everything in equilibrium. If one organ is failing in some respect to do its function, at least one other organ is going to take up the slack. Part of that is shifting elements chemically. One example I'll give you is that sodium and potassium ions, they have a real tight relationship in terms of shifting to balance. Same goes for nerves. There's chemical potentiation. That's why it's so hard to treat nerve pain as opposed to musculoskeletal pain. You can't just shut down those chemicals. It's, it's not like taking ibuprofen to lessen inflammation or something. You don't require inflammation to live. That's just a first-line immune response. You do require nerve conduction to live. I'm being very blanket in all this. I know fellow clinicians are probably like, I'd explain that differently, but I don't have time to do an advanced A&P course here. Okay, now, these chemicals we're talking about shifting and working with each other give off electric charges. And you all remember this from school when talking about cells and molecules and ions, all the little itty-bitties, and from atoms specifically, depending on the protons and electrons and neutrons balance, you've got your neutrals, you're positively or you're negatively charged. Again, my fellow science nerds, I know you're cringing, but remember, basics, blankets. We're doing this for the non-nerds amongst us. So, okay, there is electricity of a sort in our bodies, but like I say, it's chemicals that spark, not, it's not like ACDC current, we ain't got batteries on our butts or something. 
That would be useful. It would be great. And, you know, accepting people with pacemakers, of course, they have batteries, but they're, they're very wee batteries and they're not in their butts. And ask anyone, honestly, who has one, when those kick in, it can be a hell of a jolt. And on that note of the heart, let me, that was a nice unplanned lead in. Let me give you an example that's in line with our Frankenstein topic here. And it's something called cardioversion. And having both witnessed it and participated in it many times during my tenure in the ED, and that's, that's not erectile dysfunction, I mean, emergency department, it is really something to behold. I mean, my colleagues and I would have been burned at the stake as witches if this were to be seen back in the day. <laughs> There's things we can do when something's gotten out of balance and an arrhythmia has kicked up, which all arrhythmia means is there's a wonky heartbeat. There's spikes and dips and crazy shaped lines on the monitor where there shouldn't be. And while lots of times these will remedy themselves if they're mild, sometimes you got to intervene depending on how riled up your heart's getting. And like I say, one such intervention is cardioversion. And again, I'm just going to give you the quick and dirty. Cardioversion can be done chemically with drugs or it can be done with putting pads on the person like what y'all may have seen in defibrillator kits and doing the old womp. And hopefully you're able to get them a little bit liquored up before you do because it is a decent womp. And since I don't know when or if this will ever come up again, quick lesson for everybody because TV and movies have set a poor standard. It is my A number one. What is it? What's the word I'm looking for? Pet peeve. It is my A number one pet peeve. And it's why I don't, well, it's, I don't watch medical shows anyway because I just get angry from top to bottom. But this comes up in, you know, everyday, everyday random shows and it pisses me off every time. They have set a poor standard, and I, I genuinely think it has set unrealistic expectations for families when they have a loved one who dies. And, you know, I've seen lawsuits about, well, why didn't? Okay, and then you have to spend money on attorneys and litigation and go to court and have a mini lesson like what I'm about to give you for free with, with no, no payment necessary, y'all. I'm just about to give you this for free, so now you know. And hopefully it will help if you ever find yourself in a situation where you think, Medical professionals did not do enough for a family member who has passed away due to a cardiac event. And they, well, they didn't do everything. They didn't put, put the paddles on him. Well, let me explain probably why. You only use the quote unquote paddles or these pads and do advanced cardiac life support, ACLS, for very specific arrhythmias. I mean, there's a good chunk on the list. Don't misunderstand me. But it's not every single arrhythmia that gets this. It's a really intense intervention. So because TV and movies have set a poor standard, I'm going to quiz all of you and I'll put in a bit of silence so you can pause and think about it if you want. Do we ever defibrillate, that's the fancy word for shock, do we ever defibrillate a systole, better known as a flat line? Ooh. No. <gasps> no, we do not. Nobody gets out paddles and lubes them up and goes clear when somebody's got a flat line on the monitor. There has to be something there to shock back on track. There has to be a rhythm present in order to correct with the shock. You can't shock nothing into something. I gotta have some fib if I'm gonna defib. So here's quiz part two. What do you do if you see somebody drop and you touch the side of their neck under their jaw and they have no pulse? AKA, it would be a flat line if you had a monitor in your pocket. What you do is you manually try to restart the heart, AKA, you do CPR. That is the treatment for a flat line. You kneel beside them, you keep your elbows locked, you rock forward and down to push, you compress deep, and you do it fast. 
Go pull up the Bee Gees song, Staying Alive. That is precisely the speed at which you do it. And you do not stop until either someone can take over for you or you feel a strong pulse. And by strong, I mean you don't have to hunt for it. I mean you have paused compressions for the briefest of moments, you touched under their jaw, and you have felt the heartbeat immediately. Because if it's only in the ballpark of, say, 20 beats per minute, that ain't good enough. I want you back on the chest pumping. And I say all that to say, Cardioversion is a hard reboot. We have tried to pull up the toolbar menu and do a gentle little restart and no go. So here we are. It ain't the first thing you do is the point because it literally does stop the heart for a barely there moment to get it resynced. And let me tell you, these folks, they feel like a million bucks afterwards because they've been feeling so shitty for probably days on end. Now, around the time of our story, doctors and scientists didn't know all this. They couldn't pop you on a monitor or x-ray you. They couldn't just draw some blood and send it over to the lab to get a count to check all the levels of this stuff in your body. Are you low on calcium or magnesium or whatnot? And even if they could, they wouldn't know what the ranges should be to determine what impacted which bodily function. They were beginning to get their minds wrapped around some stuff. Don't get me wrong. They had made certain correlations. Just they weren't, they were getting advanced. They were getting more advanced than at least some of our other stories have dealt with. Yes. God bless them. And honestly, it's through no fault of their own because they just, they simply didn't have the tech. But they started to stumble into something that put them not too far off base. And that has to do with those charges I mentioned, though they didn't know it. I mean, many times discoveries are rooted in the most basic of things, which can be neatly summarized as accidents. Like, I was just dicking around and made a cool observation. Or, hey, I purposefully and meticulously planned and set up an experiment. But maybe I made a mistake or it just failed in general. But then something else happened. And now I've learned more from that than if it had gone as I theorized. Take Luigi Galvani and his frogs. Now, Galvani had degrees in medicine and philosophy. And by 1762, he was a tenured anatomist at a university in Italy. On the side, he was interested in an emerging field that was called medical electricity. Basically, the effects of external electric charges on the human body. So, you know, people getting struck by lightning and living to tell the tale and you examine them and see what the hell's going on and static electricity, you know, blah, blah. Okay. Sounds cool. I'm on board. It does sound cool. And then in 1780, he and his wife, who was also well-educated in the sciences and served as his assistant, they were fussing around with a dissected frog one day doing experiments with static electricity on the frog's skin. So the wife goes to get a little more skin off of said frog. And the metal scalpel she was using had picked up some of said static electricity. And when she brushes by the frog's exposed sciatic nerve, one of its little legs kicks out. And it's not like it's doing the can-can. Like, what is that frog? Hello, my baby. baby. Hello, Hello, my darling. <laughs> Hello, my ragtime gal. If you're, you, some of y'all might be too young. According to our statistics, though, P.S., most of you aren't too young. You will have immediately gotten that reference. You know it. You know exactly what we're talking about. You can see it in your head right now. A little top hat, cute little thing. Hello, listeners. I'm Jaden McKell, and welcome to Straight Up Enigmas, a podcast to explore the unexplained. Spine-tingling supernatural stories, true crime, and riddles from the ancient world are all things to expect when you tune in to Straight Up Enigmas. Like the time we discussed the mysterious death of Alyssa Lamb, or share terrifying true stories from real people about sleep paralysis and shadow people. In one of our most recent episodes, I told the story of Debbie Kent, the sister of my dad's best friend from high school, 
who was abducted and murdered by serial killer Ted Bundy. Join us every Tuesday and dive into the world's weirdest riddles, unsolved cold cases, and ghostly encounters. You can find our Straight Up Strange episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you get your podcasts. All right, so there's definitely movement. And Galvani hits incredibly close to the mark when he starts developing his theory. He submits that there must be an electrical fluid in the body that's carried to muscles by nerves. I mean, he's so close. He's so damn close. He called it animal electricity, and the Galvanis were later credited with the discovery of bioelectricity. The more proper term now is electrophysiology, but for a time, it was called, you guessed it, galvanism. And that is thanks to his nephew, Giovanni Aldini, who named the concept after his uncle. He was doing his own sciencing and really took it further. He punched it up a lot. He went for severed heads of the cow and sheep variety. Don't panic. At least, not yet. Anyhow. Oh, I've heard of this guy. I know what's going on here. Yep. <laughs> he got the jaws to flex and the eyes to open and close. I will say that this was not uncommon. People, at least they were dead. Who was it? The one that was always in fights with Tesla about ACDC current. Oh, my. Oh, God damn it. It's on the tip of my tongue. I might have to put Texas speech in here. But him and Tesla were constantly. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking God about. God damn it. And he would, like, electrocute live animals. He was a piece of shit. What was his name? Texas speech guy, put in his name. Oh, ladies. For shame. It was Thomas Edison. And yes, he was a major dick. Anyhow, he gets, of these decapitated cows and sheep, he gets the jaws to flex and the eyes to open and close. Now, can you do this into perpetuity? No, you cannot, because decomp starts the moment oxygen stops getting to where it needs to go. And here's another tidbit. Oxygen hitches a ride on red blood cells. So when the blood ain't circulating, here comes tissue death. And part of decomp is that cells begin to lyse. That's L-Y-S-E, meaning their walls break down, not L-I-C-E, the little critters. And when cells burst, all those lovely charged chemicals start leaking out. Do I think you could dig up a body and hit it with so much electricity that it moves? Sure. I think you could hit a lot of shit with enough of a pal that you're going to get some movement. But the goal here is fine, controlled motor movement. And ultimately, they must have realized it, that this electrical fluid of Galvani's must somehow be diminishing as time passes. And they were like, all right, got to do this while it's freshly dead. And some apparently thought, Better yet, still alive will do, because, quote, at the dawn of the 19th century, electricity was still mysterious, and experimentation took some strange turns indeed. Gentlemen scientists began applying current to plants, animals, and their own genitals to test its effects. <laughs> Again, you're working with what you've got. I didn't look it up, and I didn't want to know. Uh, but Aldini was kind of becoming a showman with his cow and sheep heads, and he wanted to push some limits. You will remember from other episodes, I've mentioned the Murder Act of 1752, which allowed anatomists, so doctors and scientists who were focused on anatomy and physiology, to have the bodies of executed criminals to dissect and study because people were appalled at the concept of dissection. It had led in some cases to grave robbing for hire, which dipped into murder more than a few times. Go and listen to the episode on creepy dolls. Okay, so fast forward to 1803. One George Foster is hanged for the murder of his wife and child. And guess who'd called dibs? So the body goes to Aldini immediately. I mean, this was fresh as it gets. 
And there's an audience because, of course, there was. We've talked about this before. Autopsies, surgeries, mummy unwrapping, executions. These people were bored off their tits for entertainment. And who cares about... It's a party. That's right. Who cares about the potential mental trauma or sterile spaces? Let's party. So, lots of witnesses. And quote, On the first application of the process to the face, the jaw of the deceased criminal began to quiver and the adjoining muscles were horribly contorted and one eye was actually opened. In the subsequent part of the process, the right hand was raised and clenched and the legs and thighs were set into motion. He couldn't restart the heart, though, so they were like, Fail. <clears throat> and why, y'all? Why is that, y'all? Let's say it together. We do not shock flat lines. There is no fib to defib. Oh, by the way, fibrillation. That's just, think, quiver. Something. I need a quiver. I need something. I don't, I don't care if it's not a pretty EKG looking typical, you know, the little boot, semi-dramatic drop, dramatic height, dramatic drop, and then a little bump at the end. Everybody is, can everybody picture what I'm? Jesus. Did I describe yeah. that well? That little peak? Did. did I? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I need something. There's a lot of shit you can shock. So that, that's my fib. I need some fib if I'm going to defib. But while it was deemed to fail, it was amazeballs. I mean, I would have been amazed. And it made big news. And we know Mary Shelley was aware of all this because in that introduction I keep mentioning, she included this thought, quote, perhaps a corpse would be reanimated. Galvanism had given token of such things. Perhaps the component parts of a creature might be manufactured, brought together, and endued with a vital warmth. Beyond that, a good friend of her father's happened to be, and again with the name drops and this circle of people, I mean, a good friend of her father's happened to be Erasmus Darwin, the grandfather of Charles Darwin, and he had no doubt related his observations of microscopic organisms, how one minute they seemed still, next minute seemed like they'd come back to life, like, you know, he'd seal things in glass jars, observe, remove it, observe, have it wet, observe, dry it out, observe, you get the point. And I have to tell you this, there was one he mentioned in particular called Vorticelli, but Mary got her proverbial wires crossed a bit because when she refers to this in the introduction, she calls it vermicelli. It was not, in fact, a piece of pasta. pasta. <laughs> Twerk no needles, but I think that's precious. Been there, Mary. I've been there. But I love Mary. And listen, if you don't love Mary already, I hope dearly that you love her by the time I'm done with all this. She is a fantabulous human being. We were lucky to have her. Closer to home, and I didn't know this before all my research, but Percy himself had been interested in weird sciencey shit, largely influenced by a friend of his, Dr. James Lind. Here we go, one more time. You might not have heard of Lind, but you know him because... Lind happens to be the one who discovered the cure for scurvy. All right, pop quiz time again, everybody. And I'll be quiet for a second so you can think about it. What is the cure for scurvy? What is it, Tiff? You know it. Motherfuck, what is it? I am drawing a <laughs> but I'm, so I, I'm not even being a dick. You said it. You've said it in like the Pirates episode. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> That you said I know, it. we talked about it. Yeah, we did. Because you were like, all they nice. needed was to have some oranges on the ship. It's vitamin C. Vitamin oh, C. Oh, yeah. And, and don't take much, by the way. Feel free to look it up on your own time. It really does not take much. It's astounding how little it takes to correct scurvy. But he also dicked around with shocking dead frogs. And, quote, kept a laboratory full of mad scientist equipment. And Percy Shelley also collected such equipment. I didn't get the impression that Percy did anything with it, though. It sounds like it was just for novelty. Sounds like a lot of stuff for him was just for novelty. Mm -hmm. 
Lastly, we also know that Mary was familiar with Philip von Honenheim, better known as Paracelsus. I guess it's just like Cher or Madonna. He just seemed to need the one name. Like he was that cool. He was that awesome. And it could be Paracelsus. I didn't look it up because I didn't care. You're about to hear why I didn't care because this guy, this guy. But we know she knew of him because she made Dr. Frankenstein know of him. It's mentioned in the book that he read about Paracelsus or whatever. Okay. And here was his deal. He was born in 1493, was a child prodigy. He entered college at 16 and loved him some alchemy. I'm going to bring up alchemy even more. Just you wait. So his claim to fame was that he said, he quote, developed a homunculus or little man from semen alone. Congratulations. <laughs> I, I had questions. The number one being, who's semen? <laughs> I assume his. But he doesn't mention it in his instructions, which... You best believe I'm going to read for you right now in case you have some sperm lying about and want to make your own. Let the semen of a man putrefy by itself in a sealed glass container with the highest putrefaction of venter equinus, that's horse uterus, for 40 days or until it, (laughs) or until it begins at last to live, move, and be agitated, which can be easily seen. At this time, it will be in some degree like a human being, but nevertheless transparent and without a body. If now, after this, it be every day nourished and fed cautiously with human blood. Again, whose blood? Whose spooge and whose blood? Whatever. And kept for 40 weeks. 40 weeks. In the perpetual and equal heat of Venter Equinus, it becomes thenceforth a true living infant having all the members of a child that is born from a woman, but much smaller. It should afterwards then be educated with the greatest care and zeal until it grows up and starts to display intelligence. He is full of so much shit. Who oh my needs, God. Who needs women's folk, am I right? Who needs the women's? Just jerk off into a horse uterus in a jar. You're yeah, g- go kill a pony. <laughs> Not a pony. Oh, does that, everybody knows that ponies and horses are different, right? That ponies aren't baby horses. Does everybody know that? Did I just blow a few months? Okay. Go kill a horse. Jack off into its uterus. <laughs> so simple. And it has oh to and it has to be of a decent amount, I would imagine, since one has to observe it. But I the smell. The, can I cannot get my brain wrapped around the the foulness of this. It, it is, it's foul on many levels. Don't misunderstand me. But the smell, I can't. And in a sealed container on top of that. So it's trapping that decomp heat. Plus it's, oh my God, I can't. I can't. I can't. Okay. Now. I don't, I don't like him. Oh, I hate him. I hate him and his semen. I hate him. And his little crafted, he made a little, little doll out of semen. It's so gross. It's so gross. Like, you know, those people that collect like their own belly button lint and earwax and (laughs) that's all I'm imagining now. Use use an old mismatched sock like all the other guys. Paracelsus. Paracelsus. Idiot. Now back we go to the ghost story challenge. She never presented it all to the group. Rather, this is just where things got going on that trip. And as time passed, she shared some of it with Percy, who was like, oh, baby, no, this is more than a short story. You need to make this into a book. 
So I do commend him for that. I really do. I really enjoyed that impression of him. I feel like that's spot on. Girl. Girl. You got to write this monster story? And as she patted it out, things from her life started sneaking in. For some obvious ones, she named Dr. Frankenstein's beloved younger brother William, which was her son's name. And notice that she didn't name his creation at all, just as she hadn't named her first baby who died. And the monster was essentially Frankenstein's child, at least the way Mary presented it. Quote, Mary was brought up by her parents to believe that all children must be loved and cherished, and that the powerful must care for the weak. In this, the key moment of the book, Frankenstein's rejection of his creation is against love and reason. He comes into the world an innocent. At first, Mary describes him as a creature, not a monster. It is loneliness and suffering which makes him wicked. Outside of the book, Mary had written, quote, A great proportion of the misery that wanders in this hideous form around the world is allowed to arise from the negligence of parents. We're going to touch on some unique characteristics about the book that builds upon this, and also about the publishing of it and whatnot here in a minute. But for now, let's carry on with the rest of Mary's life. Later in 1816, Percy's 21-year-old wife dies by suicide, and she was eight months pregnant, and she drowned herself. Percy's reaction was described in one of my sources as heartless. Don't know what that means. They didn't elaborate. But he did want their children. So he and Mary get hitched so that they could claim custody of the kids, who Mary welcomed into the home. She did not hesitate, even though they were continually hard up for money. More tragedy. Percy and Mary have another child, daughter Clara, but she dies of dysentery. And I didn't mention earlier, but Mary's older half-sister Fanny had also died. She had OD'd on laudanum around the time Mary got back to London after the Switzerland trip. Then, when the son, William, was three, he came down with a wicked fever. Turns out it was malaria, and he dies as well. Quote, Mary couldn't shake off the pain of William's death. To Percy, she was barely recognizable. Mary could not forgive Percy for recovering so quickly. To her, it was a betrayal of their lost children and her love. As the marriage disintegrated, all Mary's love was devoted to her fourth child, Percy Jr., the only one who would survive into adulthood. When she's 24, she's pregnant for the fifth time, and she miscarries, nearly dying from blood loss. And Percy actually saved her life because he scooped her up and carried her into the bathroom, and he filled the tub with ice water. So he legit saved her life. He's such a weird dude. Like, I really admire him for being like, you can fucking kick me out of Oxford. Watch how, these are how little fucks I give. Do it. I'm standing up for my principles and practicing what I preach and that he was well read and that he supported Mary in her endeavors and you know, he saves her life. He doesn't just go, eh, that's gross. No, he friggin' scooped her up and took care of business, you know? Yeah. I, it's so, I have such mixed feelings about him. Like, I don't hate him. I think he is just one of those in the dictionary when you look up flawed human beings. I just think he's one of those. I think he was misguided in a lot of his choices but in the end it's like he hated marriage for example he but he loved he really did genuinely love mary so you know getting married to her wasn't as big of a deal as feeling pressured into the marriage with his first wife like he was but you know he did it because he loved his children and he knew as a single father he wouldn't get custody and so i mean they 
they genuinely, these two genuinely really did love each other by all accounts. Okay, I'm digressing. She nearly dies from blood loss. And I wrote in my notes, her life is loss. That's her whole life. And here comes more. On July 1st, 1822, Percy goes on a sailing trip with a friend because they'd gotten a new boat. He had been visiting Byron in Livorno, Italy, and set sail from there. After hearing nothing for a while, Mary takes Claire with her and goes to Livorno. Quote, a sudden summer storm had engulfed Shelley's boat. Three days later, two bodies were found. Shelley was identified by the copy of John Keats' poems still in his pocket. He was 29 years old. Aww. I know. Mary legit loved him dearly, and she felt like it was her fault somehow, that she thought she could have stopped him from going on the trip, which, you know, I and Tiff and all y'all and everybody back then probably knows just ain't true. He was going to do what he wanted, as he had his whole damn life. But instead of getting mired down in grief, Mary gets busy. She made it her mission to get Percy's work known far and wide. Quote, she struggled to get Shelley's work published and have his genius recognized. Without her determination to establish him, it's possible we might not know the name or work of Percy Shelley today. But that's not all Mary did to preserve old Percy. She kept his heart. And I don't mean metaphorically. I love how she has this kind of dark side to her. I mean, it wasn't uncommon for people to keep locks of hair, for example, of their dearly departeds. But body parts even then, that, that's a touch left to center, you know? And check this out. Quote, the poet was cremated, but for some reason, his heart refused to burn. I mean, holy shit. And this huh? is, yeah, and this is for real. This is not some legend or rumor. Someone who attended the funeral, I'll call it, the, the pyre, you know, he was there at the pyre. He reaches into the fire, and I get the impression it was, you know, as it's burning out. And as y'all know, I hope actual cremation takes such a high amount of heat. I don't recall off the top of my head what it is, and I sure as shit wouldn't know it in Celsius, which is what a lot of our listeners go by, and sorry. It's, it's an extreme amount of heat, so burning someone on a pyre, you are going to have a lot of, oh, you're going to have bones for sure, but you're going to have a lot of tissue, some dense tissue left. It, it's not a cure. It's yeah, not, not going to be complete. No, no, no. It, 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 it would have to be sustained and at a high heat. Anyway, my assumption is the fire had dwindled. So he reaches in and grabs it. And supposedly Byron really wanted it. But Mary was like, hey, I'll give you his skull. How about that? So apparently somebody retrieved the skull too. I'm sorry I'm laughing. But this is, <laughs> these people, they're great. They're so just dark they're weird and they love it they're uh and just d give no shits legit though it's I'm, I'm telling you this is legit they found the heart little shriveled up thing in her desk after she passes in 1851 and it's wrapped in the pages of one of percy's last written poems i mean it y'all it don't get much better than that it doesn't get goth more goth than that i'm sorry no she is the goth queen now, prior to that, she kept it in a little bundle of silk and, quote, carried it with her nearly everywhere for years. Oh, lady. Oh, boy. Bless. <laughs> Just bless. Oh, and about the heart not burning. I'm sure you're curious about this. And yes, it for sure got charred. But the theories are that, first off, since everything was saturated in salt water, that could have aided in it not burning up as fast, allowing that guy time to snatch it. Secondly, it may have been super calcified due to a past tuberculosis infection. There's your tuberculosis appearance. 
Do you have any tuberculosis in yours? Not to spoil. Uh, no. Okay, well then there's your, that we got one in. We got one in. There's, if you're playing bingo. Yep, there's, if you're playing, you totally made that up. Bingo, have at it. Or third, it could be that it was actually some of his liver because waterlogged or calcification or not, hearts are hollow, so they're naturally going to burn a little quicker. And livers are pretty thick and much tougher. So in any event, I guess the family kept it because it finally gets interred along with the one child that has survived into adulthood, Percy Jr., when he passed in 1889. So didn't nobody bother to bury it until... (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm laughing. I just my god that's a journey it's like mom where's the kitchen scissors oh it's in that drawer to the left of the stove next to great grandpappy's heart (laughs) (laughs) look everybody's got a junk I'm sitting here feeling guilty that I don't want to keep like my great grandma's china I couldn't imagine someone being like this is the heart (laughs) and it's wrapped in the letters and I what no no, thank you. I would. I would. But I'd like have it hermetically sealed and shit. You know me. <laughs> I would nerd the shit out about it. And, I, and I'd end up donating it to a museum if it was, or for a medical school or something, just to go, ooh, at, you know. Belongs in a museum. It belongs in a museum. Let's rewind and close out discussing the book. So at that time, the early 19th century, it was hella hard to get a woman published. And good on Percy, he shopped it around and let people assume that he was the author. I mean, it was published anonymously, but he wrote the first edition's preface with a dedication to Godwin. And, you know, people become familiar with popular writers' styles, so to speak. And so they, people just assumed, like, they knew that that was him. They, that was a very spot-on assumption because it was him. So they assumed that he wrote the whole book. And they managed to get 500 copies into print. And, quote, it became an immediate sensation. And Mary did take credit for the second edition in 1822. And having a woman author, turns out, did not slow it down. It was so popular, it was adapted for the stage in 1823, increasing the popularity even more. And what were people saying? Byron later wrote, Methinks it is a wonderful book for a girl of 19. Oh, yeah? Yeah? Thanks, dipshit. You know, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's a, a, for a girl of 19, I think it's pretty. Yeah, I bet most people couldn't name one of your works, but everybody has heard of Frankenstein. See ya. And P.S., if I can just shit on, just get in a little more shit on Byron. Fuck Byron is my point. He did something horrible. I didn't, I didn't even put it in my notes. He, that child of his that he and Claire had, he fought for custody and he got it. And then he stuck her in like a nunnery or something, an orphanage nunnery or whatever. And she ends up dying. And he doesn't bother to tell Claire until the next time he sees her. Bitch. So Byron fought, 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 fought for this little girl because he was saying that he ran Claire's name through the mud, saying she was unfit to be a mother and all this stuff. And then he sticks her in essentially a boarding school orphanage type situation. And she dies. It, it just pisses me off. Just he, he And he casually, the way in my source it was presented, it was very casual. And I think Mary even wrote about in her journal how callous he was about it. But anyway. Gross. I digress. Fuck Byron. Fuck Lord Byron. All right. But it wasn't without negative critique, of course, though a lot of it stemmed from people assuming the author was Percy, and they didn't like him. Quote, Reviewers less enamored of the romantic poet damned the book's Godwinian radicalism and its Byronic impieties. See, there you go, Byron. 
One conservative member of parliament called Frankenstein a tissue of horrible and disgusting absurdity, radical, unhinged, and immoral. So, you know, they hated Percy and Byron and all Godwin's quote-unquote anarchist beliefs. And Okay. But the detractors and the ones like Byron who are all, meh, it's okay for a girl, they're missing the big picture. Quote, the art of the book lies in the way Mary nudges readers' sympathy, page by page, paragraph by paragraph, even line by line, from Frankenstein to the creature, even when it comes to the creature's vicious murders, first of Frankenstein's little brother, then of his best friend, and finally of his bride. Much evidence suggests that she succeeded. The justice is indisputably on his side, one critic wrote in 1824, and his sufferings are, to me, touching to the last degree. Then, as time has gone by, it's kind of drifted from that empathetic angle. People have drawn out some more obvious lessons, in particular looking at it as a cautionary tale for scientists, inventors, and then into even more modern time, computer programmers and technology developers. And so in that vein, I found this interesting, MIT actually published a version that had annotations specifically geared for, quote, scientists, engineers, and creators of all kinds. And in one such annotation, they drew a comparison between Dr. Frankenstein and J. Robert Oppenheimer, who, as I'm sure y'all know, invented the atomic bomb and famously quoted the Bhagavad Gita saying, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And the footnote goes on to say, quote, scientists' responsibility must be engaged before their creations are unleashed. And as one of my sources points out, yeah, this is a solid lesson and all, but it's just really easy. It's a really easy, obvious comparison, you know? Mm -hmm. And beyond that, quote, it involves stripping out nearly all the sex and birth, everything female. What made Mary Shelley's work so original was that she was a writer who was a mother. The major female 18th and 19th century writers, the Austens and the Dickinsons, tended to be, and this is a quote within a quote, spinsters and virgins. Shelley was an exception. So Mary was drawing on a lot of inspiration, as we've discussed, including injecting some autobiographical elements, such as what she seemed to think was a failure on her part, the failure of creating and sustaining another life. But let's not forget the influence of her mother, at least her mother's writings, who in her work, Thoughts on the Education of Daughters, said, I conceive it to be the duty of every rational creature to attend to its offspring, which Mary's quote on how children should be thought of and treated that I mentioned earlier really echoes. And so, regarding the Frankenstein story, quote, what follows is the autobiography of an infant. He awoke and was all confusion. He was cold and naked and hungry and bereft of company. And yet, having no language, was unable to even name these sensations. He learned to walk and began to wander, still unable to speak. Eventually, observing people talk, he learned of the existence of language. He learned how to read. The creature comes of age when he finds Frankenstein's notebook, recounting the experiment, and learns how he was created, and with what injustice he had been treated. So, here's the question. Yeah, we can have sympathy for Dr. Frankenstein to a degree because of all he's lost, but he bears the ultimate responsibility. And where does the condemnation come from? Is it because he, quote, usurped the power of God and of women, or for failing to love, care for, and educate the creature? And this is important, this creation of life aspect, and how that's unique to the female of the species. And yes, God, here we go with sperm. I get that sperm is an ingredient. I get it. But 
you know, come on, it's on the female to gestate and birth and nourish. And to this day, the bulk of the physical and emotional labor post-birth falls to a great degree to the mother. I'm not going to cite sources on that. If anyone listening is not aware of this, I don't know what to do with you. Honestly, I don't. I don't. (laughs) They're single dads. Yeah, I know. That's why I said bulk. It's disproportionate and you know it. So it's extra interesting that it's essentially the dad here that's getting called out. Mary had the opposite. She had a very involved father. That side by side is obvious, but he did end up disowning her. And then we've got her husband who is just boning whoever and getting them pregnant. Then at the end, he's left Mary with the responsibility of their own child, plus the ones he fathered with someone else, gone off to hang with his bro, Byron, and gets himself dead. What a bummer. (laughs) My mind just was like, what the fuck, man? It's just, I know. That sucks. I know. When you start really thinking about it, this is, it's, it's a horror story and it's a really insert knife twist type of mm-hmm. story too. There, there's just, there's lots to mine. And more beyond that, there's also some very interesting slavery connotations. Mary believed in abolitionist principles, was well read on it. And you can check out more on this in the New Yorker article in show notes. I, we simply do not have the time to go down this road. And they did a much better job than I could have. And they also mentioned some kind of shades of maybe French Revolution type things creeping in there too. It's, it, the New Yorker article is quite good. So check that out. But finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't touch on something that you hear all the time. It can be argued that this 18-year-old young woman created the science fiction and or horror genre. Was she the first to write a horror story? First one to mention sciencey stuff in a story? Well, no, I'm not saying she was. But this was a unique merging of the two, and it was rooted in reality. Because even though I explained that galvanism on the whole ain't possible, they weren't as far off the mark as it might seem at first glance, as I hope that I've conveyed decently well. That Mary Shelley invented science fiction itself, well, you can find plenty of opinions that say yes, definitely. You can also find others that say, nope, it was Johannes Kepler, who I'm sure you've heard of, astronomy guy, if not, kindly Google him on your own time, or that it was a dude called Johann Valentin Andrea. Kepler had a story called Somnium, nope, Somnium, (laughs) published in 1634, and I'll just quote here. In the narrative, an Icelandic boy and his witch mother learn of an island named Lavania, our moon, from a demon. Somnium presents a detailed imaginative description of how Earth might look when viewed from the moon and is considered the first serious scientific treatise on lunar astronomy. Carl Sagan and Isaac Asimov have referred to it as one of the first works of science fiction. And again, on your own time, Google Sagan and Asimov if you don't know who they are. Okay, fine. But there's no horror in that. And that, to me, sounds more fantasy than anything else. So what of this other guy in his story? Andrea wrote a story called The Chemical Wedding, which fantastic title, by the way, or The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosencruz, published in 1616. And by chemical here, it means alchemy. And here we are again. God damn it. And alchemy is not science, even though people, some people, let me clarify, some people, because not everybody, even back then, bought into this garbage, thought it was at the time. And here, by the way, if you're unfamiliar with alchemy, here's a taste, quote, Common names were chrysopoeia, which is the transmutation of base metals, in other words, lead, into noble metals, in other words, gold. The creation of an elixir of immortality. The creation of panaceas able to cure any disease. 
which I 100% read as pancreas when I was transcribing that quote, but it's fantasy as I now see, and the development of an alkahest, which is a universal solvent. So if I could sum up total horse shit with basis in, you know, nothing, just fanciful imaginations. And who boy, here's the summary of that book, quote, Andrea's story opens as a winged woman, so bright and beautiful in a sky-colored robe, invites Christian Rosencruz, who is the real-life founder of the philosophical secret society of Rosicrucianism, to a, right, uh-huh, to a royal wedding. And that quote, it is an allegoric romance divided into seven days or seven journeys, much like Genesis, and recounts how Christian Rosencruz was invited to a wonderful castle full of miracles in order to assist the chemical wedding of the king and queen. Now, I just, do I even need to comment on that? How it is not even remotely hitting the mark of the genre we mean, of what we're trying to nail down? It's, it's, it's hell and gone. In any event, I have linked you to an article from The Guardian in show notes where an author who has republished The Chemical Wedding, again, fan-fucking-tastic title, I love it. He's republished it in recent past, and he lays out his arguments for why it is the real first science fiction work and not Kepler's. It also includes, however, a rebuttal from an academic who says, no, alchemy ain't science, it's magic. Thank you. And besides, there's other alchemy-involved stories that were out there before this one. And double besides, if we're going to toss in utopias and dystopias under the umbrella of sci-fi, then hey, how about Thomas More's Utopia, which was published in 1516? Lord, here we go. Utopia can be summed up thusly, quote, a little true book not less beneficial than enjoyable, about how things should be in the new island. Utopia is a work of fiction and socio-political satire. The book is a frame narrative, primarily depicting a fictional island society and its religious, social, and political customs. Many aspects of Moore's description of Utopia are reminiscent of life in monasteries. Yeah, that sure sounds like what we're going for here. Totally in the same ballpark. No, no, it's not. None of these are. None of them. And I like to think that I'm a fairly intelligent and well-read person, and I have no idea what these people are talking about. None. Trying to lump them in the same vein as Frankenstein. I truly don't. I mean, these to me should be chucked into fantasy adventure and all the other sub-genres that these people themselves have mentioned, you know, and trying to say, oh, yeah, that's what it is. And they're mentioning what? Sociopolitical satire, fantasy, dystopia. Okay, whatever. I tell you all this to say, let the boys have their credit. My suggestion is to not credit Mary with solely inventing horror, nor to credit her with solely inventing science fiction. Rather, that she invented modern science fiction with that kick of horror icing on the cake. Because the general definition of science fiction today is, quote, fiction based on imagined future scientific or technological advances and major social or environmental changes. And Frankenstein nails it. Because again, galvanism was indeed thought to have potential, assuming scientists could keep experimenting and figure out what they were missing, what the proper stimulation procedure was, what that electrical liquid that Galvini proposed was, etc., etc., ad nauseum. As one of my sources puts it, quote, Frankenstein was the first speculative novel of its kind. It looked into the possible future of modern science and considered what that could mean for humanity. Mary Shelley also authored The Last Man, a post-apocalyptic novel that kicked off the whole last man standing genre of sci-fi too. So, you know, suck it. Everybody can suck it. She rocks. 
Bottom line, by 1851, Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, had sold over 7,000 copies, which was more than all of Percy Shelley's poetry volumes combined. It has never been out of print. It has consistently been adapted and performed on stage. Then, starting in the 20th century with arguably the most famous portrayal of the monster by actor Boris Karloff in 1931, there's been movies galore. Dozens, at least, have been made, either strictly about just the book's story or that have the monster being a featured character in others. Talk about a legacy. I mean, talk about life beyond death. And, as Mary once wrote, Loneliness has been the curse of my life. What should I have done if my imagination had not been my companion? I might have groveled on the earth. I might have died. But for my dreams, my darling bright dreams. And that is your story of Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. Damn, girl. <laughs> I mean, I would have been friends with her if she'd, if she'd had me in a hot minute. Mm-hmm. You would have stories, definitely, from hanging out with her. I mean, they'd have probably... They'd probably try to have sex with me. <laughs> not her. <laughs> not her. I mean, Percy and Byron, because you know why? I mean, uh, teeth issues right now aside, I'm a dish. I'm a dish. I ain't half bad. But more importantly, I'm breathing and have, you know, two arms and two legs. And, and I'm of the female persuasion. That, that's the only criteria for them, I'm pretty sure. So, mm-hmm. you know, they'd have had me. But no, I would have refrained. But hell yes, I'd have been her buddy. Oh, yes. Yeah. I would not have been friends with Bram. No? No. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. What a a lead in there. What a transition (sighs) we just managed there. All right. Tell us of Dracula. Uh, All right. You ready? ready? I'm I'm ready. Your your chairman is singing. (laughs) I know. Well, I did. I just, I had a very long exhale, like to the point where I had to like, Recline my chair back all the way because I needed a moment to gather myself here for my story. All right. It's kind of creaky door though, you know, like. It's, yeah. 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 It's good for the episode. Hey, it's Future Nash, walking through a spooky, creaky door. See how I tied that in? Genius. All right, so here we are. I talked for too long. Nobody's surprised. Anyway, we decided it would be best to split the Halloween episode in two. But listen, you're not going to have to wait another week for it. We're going to publish it as soon as it's edited. And as this is now the end of the episode, it's the part where we usually remind you to keep listening so you can hear how to get in touch with us, because we love hearing from you. Happy Halloween. This is where the catchphrase goes. Thanks so much for listening. As a reminder, you can check out our sources for each of the episodes at show notes, along with any supplemental things we think you might enjoy. Visit us on our blog at youtotallymadethatup.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at YTMTU podcast and on Instagram at you totally made that up. Feel free to contact us on those platforms and you can also email us. That address is you totally made that up at gmail.com.